Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.24, Ella, the First Lady of Moscow. Last time, we saw Ella come to Russia and become immersed in her new life, one of deep spiritualism and unbelievable wealth. She made friends, won numerous admirers, but some worried that she was unhappy. Her husband, the picture postcard example of both a religious zealot and a conservative reactionary, was thought to be cruel to her and disinterested in her sexually, rumours that she assiduously denied but remained nonetheless. These flames were further fanned when, after a lifetime of following her family's Lutheran faith, she formally converted to Russian Orthodoxy. Yet, as we discussed last week, while her husband was not exactly a wonderful human being and could be rude to her even in public, Ella's decisions were very much her own, including her decision to convert. She cared for her husband deeply and loved her life in Russia. Today, though, we'll see her worldview come into conflict with that of Sergei's, as they moved from their home in St. Petersburg to the ancient Russian metropolis of Moscow. But before we get going, I'd just like to thank all of my wonderful patrons on Patreon that keep this show on the road. Especially I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Krista and Catherine. Thanks so much, guys. Your support is so appreciated. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. On the 26th of February, 1891, the Tsar upended Ella and Sergei's lives when he appointed him as Governor-General of Moscow. This was an immensely important role, as it essentially made Sergei the ruler of Russia's second city with extremely broad powers. It was a position that was typically given to decorated military commanders and was a tremendous honour. 
Alexander III was keen that the Governor-General of Moscow be a man of the same political persuasion as himself, someone he had complete confidence that would act as he would act. This made Sergei absolutely ideal for the job. However, it was not a move that was especially relished by either Sergei or Ella. It was an immensely public role, one that involved a lot of civic appearances, speeches and pressing of the flesh, things that Sergei instinctively detested. It also required him to give up his beloved commands in the Russian army, leaving friends, comrades and possibly lovers behind in St. Petersburg. As for Ella, she wasn't exactly thrilled either. She had built a very happy life for herself with a great number of friends, and the prospect of being uprooted somewhere completely unfamiliar was not exactly enticing. In a letter to the Tsarevich Nicholas, she wrote, quote, We were very much touched by the great confidence your father has shown my darling husband in giving him such an important post. But you can well imagine how the beginning of a perfectly new kind of life emotions us, and then the idea of knowing all our family and friends are here, and we not being able to see them daily, is a great grief. So at this present moment, we are low-spirited. Moscow was, in many ways, the polar opposite of St. Petersburg. Where the capital was modern and western in outlook and appearance, Moscow was medieval and eastern. It had been the home of the Russian patriarch until the abolition of the role by Peter the Great, and was home to many of its most ancient churches and monasteries. It was a city that contained the full cross-section of Russian urban life, from the cultured, well-heeled elites at the top, with wealthy industrialists and faded aristocrats aspiring to their level, yet a small group of middle-class tradesmen and the bourgeoisie rising above the common workers, and then at the bottom you had the poor and the destitute. Now, Sergei has an infamous reputation for being an ultra-conservative reactionary, but this didn't mean that he didn't care about the poverty in the city under his rule. When he arrived in Moscow, he went into all parts incognito, finding out for himself what life was like. He became the patron of a number of charities for the homeless and disadvantaged children, and went after unscrupulous traders and industrialists. Indeed, he understood the need for some reform, However, he also recognised that these things took time. You couldn't just do it all in one go. That would cause chaos. You had to do it slowly, circumspectly, in the fullness of time. Glacially, really. But he did believe in it to an extent, and this meant that he managed to tick off both sides of the argument. Ella's brother Ernie wrote in his memoirs that, quote, the tragedy of Sergei's life was that he was too far-sighted, for in politics the strongly conservative party considered him too progressive because he wanted and strived for improvements that were unacceptable to it, and the liberals hated him because they thought he was blocking their attempts to storm forward. He considered many of their wishes to be impractical, or thought the time was not ripe for them. Now, I think this description of his views is a little generous. If anyone was a member of the strongly conservative party, it was Sergei. But there is no doubt that there were people, even more hard-line than he, that were suspicious of his attitude towards the poor. His time as Governor-General would be deeply controversial, but his worst moment came right at the very start of his tenure, and, as was sadly all too common at this time, it concerned the Jews. Historically, Russia didn't have a particularly large Jewish population, 
but following the incorporation of Poland in the late 18th century, they acquired quite a sizable number. They were heavily repressed from the beginning, not allowed to move into the East without permission or conversion, but things got particularly bad in the 1880s, when a wave of pogroms swept the empire following the assassination of Alexander II. These were essentially massive anti-Semitic riots that were egged on by the press and government officials, that targeted Jewish-owned businesses and led to Jewish families being attacked in the streets by large mobs. The official response was either to downplay the violence or to blame the Jews themselves, stating that they somehow had it coming. It led to a new wave of restriction on Russian Jews called the May Laws, denying or greatly limiting them access to various professions, such as medical and legal work. When Sergei became governor-general of Moscow, the 800,000 inhabitants of the city contained around 20,000 Jews, but this quickly changed. An imperial edict was published that expelled almost every Jew from the city. Police surrounded the ghettos in which the Jews had been forced to live and forcibly evicted them at gunpoint. Some were imprisoned, some deported to Siberia, but most were sent west to the Pale, places like modern Poland and Ukraine, where restrictions on Jewish people were far less strict. Though this decree had come from the emperor, and the evictions had actually started before he took office, Sergei's time as governor-general would forever be tainted by this pogrom. He was as anti-Semitic as most of the Russian aristocracy, and firmly believed in this policy, though. He also did nothing to ease the suffering of the 20,000 people he was uprooting, doing it in the depths of the Russian winter, at such a speed that meant that families often had to leave nearly everything behind. Now, a big question that we must ask here is whether Ella approved of all of this. She wasn't Russian, and so wasn't indoctrinated with the virulent anti-Semitism that was rampant amongst the people that she lived and socialised with. She grew up in the West, to a liberal-minded progressive family, where anti-Semitism was not something that came up in her childhood. We don't know what, if anything, she said to her husband about this, but we actually do know that she opposed it. She wrote to her brother, quote, I cannot believe that we will not be judged in some way for this in the future. He believes this is for our security. I see nothing in it but shame. The expulsion of Moscow's Jews was a great human tragedy, but it was only one of many that hit Russia that year. The first was very personal to Ella, as it concerned her best friend Alexandra, the wife of her brother-in-law Paul. They had come to stay with Ella and Sergei Ilinskoya. Alex was seven months pregnant, and so everyone was incredibly alarmed when she suddenly collapsed in front of her husband and in-laws, and shortly after went into labour. The severely premature boy survived, but Alexandra passed away a few days later, never having regained consciousness. Yet far greater tragedy was to come, as famine ravaged the empire over the course of that winter and the following spring. Around 400,000 Russians died and millions suffered from severe malnutrition, as central Russia was devastated by crop failure. It had started because of bad weather, but was exacerbated by Russia's creaking infrastructure and systematic mismanagement. This is not to say that the Romanovs didn't care about the suffering Russian peasantry. Indeed, many of them, Ella amongst them, threw themselves into charity work. 
the Tsar himself gave fully half of his annual income, an enormous sum, to the relief fund, and put his son the Tsarevich in charge. Ella herself set up her own relief committee in Moscow, raised money, and went on visits to the affected areas to see how it was being spent. Using the same approach as her mother, she organised bazaars, which raised a significant sum of 400,000 rubles. And while this was not nearly enough to ease the suffering of the starving peasants, it also wasn't nothing. This sat alongside all of her existing charity work, which was considerable. Her main concerns, again like her mother's, was for the poor and the homeless, and also in the spreading of education. Here are just some of the organisations within which she was involved. The Red Cross, the Free Hospital of Military Physicians, the Ladies' Trusteeship for the Poor of Moscow, the Association of Care of the Needy Children in Moscow, the Job Searchers Bureau in Moscow, and the Maria Charitable Orphanage. The following year saw further tragedy for Ella, as in March 1892, her father suffered a stroke. The whole family rushed to his side in Darmstadt, and Ella got to spend two final days with him before he died peacefully, surrounded by his children. He was succeeded by his son Ernie, who was rather overwhelmed by all the responsibility that had been placed upon his shoulders. As the two of them were very close, Ella felt it was her duty to tarry a while in Germany to help him through the transition. There, she was reunited with her grandmother, Queen Victoria, who came over to Darmstadt to deliver the Grand Duke a crash course in governance. She stayed there for many months and remained in official mourning for nearly a year, completely retreating from all social engagements. While there is no doubting that her grief was very real, she equally would not have found this forced abstinence from society a great trial. While she was far more social than her reclusive husband, she too found life amongst Russia's aristocracy to be a rather frivolous and pointless place. In this time, she began to take greater responsibility for Marie and Dmitri, the children of Sergei's brother Paul. Since Alexandra's death, Paul spent even more time at Ilinskoya with Ella and Sergei, and she became a kind of reluctant surrogate mother to her dear friend's kids. As we shall see later on, Ella was not exactly filled with the maternal spirit, but she took her duty very seriously. Her friend was dead, and now she had to step up. They all travelled together to Coburg that year to attend the wedding of Ernie to another one of Queen Victoria's grandchildren, Princess Victoria Melita of Saxe-Coburg, and became almost inseparable. The following year, 1894, saw another one of Ella's family perish. This time, though, it was Tsar Alexander III. He had been suffering for a few months from kidney failure, and had held on just long enough to see his son Nicholas become engaged to Ella's sister Alex before he died. Ella was by his side when it happened, and related the following to Queen Victoria. Quote, the doors were opened, and we all knelt down to hear his last quiet breath. No agony whatever, and that pure soul went to heaven. Oh, to die like that, makes one feel God's presence, and that from this world we are all called to real life. If you knew the comfort, the calm it gave our souls while our hearts were breaking. God bless him. The death of the Tsar meant that her little sister went from being the sister of the ruler of Hesse to being empress of all the Russias within the space of just a few weeks. Ella was delighted to have her in the country, 
and personally supervised the decoration and furnishing of her private rooms in the Winter Palace. She stayed with Alex and Nikki over the next few months in St. Petersburg, as preparations were made for their coronations, which were due to take place in the Kremlin Cathedral on the 14th of May, 1895. They travelled together to the city, where two days of fates and celebrations had been planned, beginning with the great state entry into Russia's former capital. Sergei had been put in charge of organising everything, and for the most part, everything went to plan. There was no crowd trouble, and the wedding went off without a hitch. But then a disaster struck that would stain Sergei's reputation, already soiled by his expulsion of the Jews once again. It had become traditional to host a people's fate on the day of the coronation. People would be invited into the city and be given free food and drink, as well as commemorative items such as mugs and kerchiefs. Sergei had chosen the Kodinka Meadow, a military training ground for the celebration, but this was a terrible choice, as it was crisscrossed with ditches and depressions. Even worse, only one squadron of Cossacks had been allocated for crowd control, and there was almost nothing in the way of organisation to marshal the 700,000 people that showed up. As one might expect, the inevitable happened. A rumour that there would not be enough gifts to go around started a surge, which turned into a panic, which turned into a stampede, which turned into a crush. Those that witnessed it said that the meadow resembled a battlefield when all was said and done. In all, over a thousand people, who had all come to celebrate the coronation of the Tsar and the Tsarina, lay dead. As the man in charge, Sergei rightly took the blame for the tragedy. His lax organisation had allowed it to happen, and this was compounded by his failure to cancel any of the festivities happening afterwards, persuading his suggestible nephew Nicholas that to do so would be down to nothing other than, quote, sentimentality. He didn't visit the site, he didn't visit any of the victims in hospital. Basically, he did nothing to acknowledge that the massive loss of life that had occurred under his watch. The debacle exacerbated the great division at the Tsar's court, between reformers led by his cousin Sandro and the hardliners led by Sergei. One reform-minded cousin said to Nicholas, who, let's remember, had only just come to the throne, that, quote, the blood of those men, women and children will remain forever a blot on your reign. Even K.R., one of Sergei's closest friends, condemned him, saying that he was, quote, to blame for the lack of foresight, and it is his fault that he is being showered with accusations. Had he gone to the scene of the accident? Had he put in an appearance at the funeral of the victims? Had he told the emperor that, as the person ultimately responsible, he no longer felt worthy of continuing as governor-general? Had he requested the most thorough investigation? Then no one would condemn him. On the contrary, he would inspire great sympathy. In a word, during the whole of this week, Sergei has not acted in the way that I consider that he should. I love him dearly. We have been friends since childhood, and now I have to listen to condemnation of him from all sides. And yet I am not able to say one word in his defence. And that was from one of his closest friends. Although her heart went out to the victims of the deceased, Ella stuck firmly by her man throughout all of this. She resolutely believed that Sergei was not to blame and defended him to the hilt, agreeing with her husband that it had been the chief of police who was really at fault. 
He, though far from the most at fault, was dismissed, but Sergei remained in post. In so doing, Ella showed great loyalty to her husband, but it doesn't do her any credit. If this had occurred on her mother's watch, wild horses could not have kept her away from the hospitals, holding the injured and the dying. But loyalty to her husband, and perhaps fear of going against him, meant that Ella did not do this. It is a blemish on her record. We've talked a lot about what Ella was up to and the events surrounding her, but I am conscious that we haven't had an awful lot of colour, especially about her domestic life. So let's have some. In her memoirs, Marie Pavlovna, the daughter of Sergei's brother Paul, wrote the following of Ella in this period. Quote, Aunt Ella was one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in my life. She was tall and slight, of blonde colouring, with features of extraordinary fineness and purity. She had eyes of grey-blue, and the effect of her glance was unusual. Even when in the country, my aunt gave a great deal of time and attention to her appearance. She designed most of the dresses herself, sketching and painting them in watercolours, planning them with care, and wearing them with art and distinction. My uncle Sergei, who had a passion for jewels, gave her many, so that she had a different set to harmonise with almost every costume that she wore. Of dressing for dinner, she made a veritable ceremony, and one that required much time. The maids, the mistress of the wardrobe, all were assembled. Cambric linen bordered with lace was made ready in a basket lined in rose satin. Wash basins were filled with hot water and perfumed with verbena. Rose petals were floated in the bath. Commercial cosmetics scarcely existed in Russia at that time. Painting the face was an art almost unknown to Russian ladies of the day, and to princesses unknown entirely. Aunt Ella made her own face lotion, a mixture of cucumber juice and sour cream. She never permitted the summer sun to touch her skin, guarding it whenever she came out with a silk veil of thick mesh and a silk parasol lined in green. While her maids were dressing her, my aunt would regard herself attentively, usually with pleasure, in a triple-high mirror, the final adjustment she would make with her own hands. One of the maids dressed her hair. She did the nails herself. They were curiously shaped, very flat and thin, curving forward over the edge of her fingers. This is a description of a woman who took great care and pride over her duties as a hostess and in her appearance. You can definitely detect a hint of vanity in there, but that was just the Romanov way. Appearance was everything, and Ella had a lot to flaunt, both in terms of her beauty and in her wealth. Marie also wrote about Ella's growing spirituality and involvement in the Orthodox faith. Quote, Converted to the Orthodox religion, my aunt had become each year more devoutly attached to its forms and practices. Although himself pious and scrupulous in observance of all the rites of Orthodoxy, Uncle Sergei regarded with anxiety his wife's increasing absorption in things spiritual, and ended by regarding it as immoderate. There is none more pious than the born-again or the converted, and it seems that Ella, like her sister Alex would do so as well, became immersed in the rites and mysticism of Russian Orthodoxy, though not quite to the same degree. Ella had always been a deeply religious woman, but Marie offers an explanation for why this was the case. 
Quote, Sergei treated her as if she was a child. I believe that she was hurt by his attitude and longed to be better understood. But it was as if she were being driven deeper and deeper within herself for refuge. She and my uncle were never very intimate. They met for the most part only at mealtimes and by day avoided being alone together. They slept, however, up to the last year of their life, together, in the same bed. The nature of Ella and Sergei's relationship, as we've discussed before, is rather controversial. The mistake that all too many people that study history forget is that while they love putting themselves in the position of people in the past, they often forget to incorporate their philosophies and worldviews as well. There were some loving and very intimate marriages in this period, where the couples seemingly couldn't keep their hands off each other. Albert and Victoria is one, Nicholas and Alex will be another, but most marriages were not like that at all. Most bore far more resemblance to that of Sergei and Ella. Sergei may have been a misogynist, but what man wasn't in the 19th century? Very few. They had their problems and were far from a perfect couple, but it looks like this marriage was one that suited them both, and they had enough in common to be happy together. They may have led semi-separate lives, and Sergei's behaviour certainly rankled with Ella, but that didn't stop their marriage from being successful. Ella's role as the unofficial First Lady of Moscow meant that she had ample time to further indulge in her passion for getting involved with civic duty. She had a particular love for the performing arts, and as patron of the Moscow Philharmonic Society, she put on performances herself, getting intimately involved in the minutiae of theatre production. She also, from 1900 onwards, had the honour of hosting the Tsar and his family over the Easter months. This was an old custom that had fallen into disuse, but was revived by Nicholas. This required Ella to lay on, every year, a three-week festival of activities, fasting and worship, to mark the religious occasion and entertain the emperor. Ella's relationship with her sister in this period has come under quite a bit of scrutiny. Alex was a young, inexperienced woman when she came to Russia, and was thrown straight into the deep end when she became empress immediately after getting married. She had no preparation for this role, but the presence of her elder sister in Russia, it was hoped, would provide her with support and advice that would help her through and get better at her new role. Many have argued that Ella failed in this role, though, allowing Alex to start her reign from a position of weakness from which she would never recover. She had arrived in Russia while the nation was in mourning for Alexander III, and then, of course, there had been the disaster at the people's fate at her coronation. For the deeply superstitious Russians, these were seen as terrible omens. Then there was the fact that she was a foreigner who struggled to understand Russian customs, and that despite numerous pregnancies, she had so far failed to give birth to a son, instead bearing a series of daughters. This all meant that Alex did not have the popularity enjoyed by both Ella and the Dowager Empress Marie, and this only got worse as Alex's stubbornness and refusal to compromise herself, while commendable, made her a deeply unpopular figure at court. So could Ella have done more to guide her sister? Remember that she had become a semi-maternal figure for Alex after the death of her mother, and she could have used her years of experience in Russia to guide her. But while she could have taken on a more hands-on role, there are a few good reasons why she didn't. The first of these was geographical. Moscow is around 450 miles from St. Petersburg, greater than the distance between London and Edinburgh, or Boston and Washington, D.C. This wasn't an incredible distance for the time, 
but it certainly made it hard for Ella to mentor her sister in the way that she perhaps needed. Then there was Alex's personality. As I said before, Alex was a very strong-willed and stubborn woman, who didn't take especially kindly to being told what to do, especially by a sister that she had not seen a whole lot of while growing up. The two had a good relationship and were close, but they didn't have the sort of big sis, little sis dynamic that one might have expected. One way that they came into conflict was over Alex's predilection for putting her faith in mystics. The most famous of these is yet to come. But before Rasputin came a 50-year-old man from Lyon, known to history as Monsieur Philippe. We're not entirely sure what Philippe was all about. Some call him a mystic, others a faith healer, a hypnotist, or, least charitably, a complete fraudster. He came into the imperial family's orbit thanks to the wonderfully named Black Peril, two Russian princesses who were fascinated by the occult and surrounded themselves with all sorts of fringe cultists. The main reason why Philippe had managed to worm his way into the imperial circle of trust was that he had persuaded the Tsar and Tsarina that he could guarantee the birth of a son. As I said, Alex had given birth to a troop of daughters, but although Russia had been ruled by women before, it was still considered vital for her to produce a male heir. Philippe was referred to as Alex and Nikki's friend, and thanks to his proximity to them, gained a great deal of power. They tried to keep things on the down low, but such a thing was utterly impossible to do in the incestuous world of the Russian court, and so the failed effort at secrecy only increased the scandal. Realising the damage this was doing to Alex's already fragile reputation, Ella and others tried to gently persuade her to end her family's relationship with Philippe, but to no avail. After a year or so of this, though, Ella redoubled her efforts and confronted her sister again while on a drive around the Alexandra Park. In a letter to her husband, Alex said that Ella, quote, "...assailed me about our friend. I remained very quiet and gave dull answers." especially after she said she wanted to get to the bottom of it. She has heard many very unfavourable things about him, that he is not to be trusted. She said such secrecy had been spun around it. I'm sure my answers are most unsatisfactory to her. Let's hope she won't begin again. Alex, though, was to be disappointed in that expectation, and eventually Philippe was dismissed from court after being exposed. This was not the only scandal that caused Ella trouble and pain at this time. Her beloved brother Ernie's marriage to Victoria Melita, which had been heavily encouraged by Queen Victoria, had never been a happy one, and after only two years, the two were living apart. In 1901, Victoria Melita packed her bags and left Hesse to shack up with her cousin Vladimir, a grandson of Tsar Alexander II's and therefore a cousin of Sergei's. Ella had sympathy with her brother's plight. The idea of divorce was absolute anathema to her. There were also rumours about that Ernie was a homosexual, which also can't have helped her feelings on the matter. The divorce was finally granted in December of 1901, which would have been a great relief to both parties. But for Ella, this was a very hurtful scandal. And then things got worse. It turned out that Sergei's widowed brother Paul was having an affair with Olga, the wife of Vladimir's aide-de-camp. Indeed, this woman had borne Paul a child. Paul was besotted by Olga and wanted to marry her, but her low social station made that all but impossible. He would have to give up his children, his rank, his income and his status to do so. 
Sergei and Ella begged him not to do it, to think of his children, but it was no use. He eloped with Olga, first to Tuscany and then to Paris, and though Sergei and Ella followed him, pleading with him to reconsider, it was to no avail. There they would stay, a sort of proto-Duke and Duchess of Windsor, holding lavish parties and thumbing their noses at the polite society that had driven them into exile. Meanwhile, back in Russia, Ella was left to pick up the pieces. Put yourself in her position. She had no maternal experience to speak of, and now suddenly had been duty-bound to adopt two angry teenagers. Marie and Dimitri didn't take the view that their father had abandoned them and run off to Paris. They saw Paul as the wronged party, forced out of the family because of an antiquated and stuffy imperial system. They did not ever thank Uncle Sergei and Aunt Ella for taking care of them, for giving them room and board. They resented them as much as anyone else, and their very proximity made them the focus of ire. Ella's correspondence never really touches on her feelings on Marie and Dimitri, but we do have quite a bit from Marie. I quoted quite a bit earlier, but she also wrote the following about Ella in her memoirs. Quote, Aunt Ella showed no interest in us or in anything that concerned us, and she saw as little of us as she could. She appeared to resent our presence in the household and our uncle's apparent affection for us. While some of this can be put down to misplaced anger, there is no doubt that Ella struggled to connect with her niece and probably didn't try hard enough to build rapport. Ella was moral, upright and proper. Marie was fun-loving, liked having a good time and resented the formality of life with her aunt. They were just two very different people who never worked out how to get along. So Ella's relationship with her niece was strained and she had disagreements with her sister, despite being close to her, but she did manage to maintain a strong bond with the Tsar. Remember that Nicholas, although only two years younger than Ella, affectionately called her his little aunt, and she was able to tell true to the autocrat better than many. She felt able to write to him, to try and soften some of his more reactionary tendencies. Of course, these reactionary tendencies were very much stoked and sharpened by her husband, meaning that these letters were often written at some risk. Here is a great example of one from 1900, urging him to bring an end to a crackdown on opposition to his rule. Quote, Darling boy, dearest child, let me call you so, and let an old heart pour out its prayers to you. Sergei does not know of this letter. It will probably be unlogical and over-feminine, but I have picked other brains and kept my ears open. And as we hear much, and through deeply clever, devoted people with experience and love for their sovereign and country, I thought, who knows, even a woman can be of use in heavy times. Note her use of self-deprecating language here. She knows what she's doing. Nicholas II was well known for being weak and malleable, someone who could always be talked around to your side with a great combination of fear and charm. The difficulty was, once having persuaded him over to your side, keeping him there. She continues, quote, Nicky dear, for heaven's sake, be energetic now. More deaths may be in store. Put an end to this terror. I don't expect you're doing what I say. I only put it so in case these ideas may be of use to you. Yet Ella's pleas fell on deaf ears. He continued to meet discontent and demands for change from workers and the intelligentsia with violence and repression, all of which only led to a build-up of simmering tension from below. 
Now, once again, I must warn you that I am about to summarise momentous events very quickly and simply, so be warned. Urban strikes and peasant uprisings plagued Russia in the early years of the 20th century, and Nicholas's only response was to put them down without any thought to address their cause. And then there came Russia's stunning and wholly unexpected defeat in the Russo-Japanese War. Over the course of just 18 months, Nicholas saw much of his navy destroyed and his armies defeated, all by an Asian power that Europeans had assumed to be far inferior. As you might expect, Ella threw herself into war work, organising nursing units to be sent to the front in the Far East, and ambulance trains that would bring the wounded across the whole Asian continent back to Moscow and St. Petersburg for treatment. She coordinated donations, ensuring that they were sent to where they were needed, and embarked on visits to ensure that hospitals had the supplies they needed. This work was highly visible, and only added to her popularity with the Russian people, one of the few Romanovs that was still loved. While this work on the home front was going well, the disastrous handling of the war further emboldened protest and led to a huge workers' demonstration converging on the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to hand the Tsar a petition. The troops guarding the palace were ordered to open fire, leading to hundreds of workers falling to the ground dead, with several thousand being wounded in an incident that became known as Bloody Sunday. Meanwhile, over in Moscow, Sergei found himself at odds with his nephew the Tsar, who wished to finally placate the mob with some small liberal reforms. Sergei was hated by socialist and anarchist groups, who saw him as the very embodiment of the system that they were trying to overthrow, and it was hoped by Nicholas's ministers that if Sergei was removed, then maybe they could regain control. Faced with rolling back some of his signature policies, Sergei complied and resigned as governor-general of the city, but he would not be able to escape the fallout of what was quickly developing into the 1905 revolution. On the 17th of September 1905, after having lunch together, Sergei and Ella emerged from their palace, preparing to go their separate ways for the afternoon. Ella was planning on visiting a friend who was recovering after surgery. Sergei was off to the Governor-General's mansion to finish up closing down his administration. Sergei's carriage arrived first, and he said goodbye to his wife, got in, and set off. As the carriage drove into Red Square, it came alongside a man named Ivan Kalyayev, a socialist revolutionary. He threw a bomb into the carriage. Now, just to warn you, this is going to get a little bit gruesome from here on in. If that is the sort of thing that would likely upset you, then I'd recommend stopping the podcast now. The resulting explosion was so large that it shattered the windows of all the surrounding buildings on that side of the square, and quite literally blew the Duke apart, with body parts strewn across a wide angle. Parts of the carriage were thrown over 200 metres away, and the terrified horses bolted, pulling the driver, who miraculously was still alive, back towards the palace. Kalyayev too survived, though his body was punctured with splinters and blood was streaming down his face. He was picked up immediately by a police sleigh and taken into custody. Ella, upon hearing the explosion, headed at great speed to Red Square and was greeted by the bloody scene of carnage that I described. Some of those that had already gathered around tried to prevent her from approaching, but she brushed them aside and surveyed the scene in utter horror. However, she quickly regained her composure 
and entered into organisational mode. It was what she was good at. She ordered those around her to help her gather up the remains of her husband, including his torso, part of his skull, a hand, some fingers, a still-booted foot, and other assorted bone fragments. These were placed on a stretcher, along with Sergei's medals, and taken inside, and placed on the altar of the Alexei Chapel. Just over an hour later, with the noise of the explosion probably still ringing in everyone's ears, the funeral service was performed. Her niece Marie wrote in her memoirs that, quote, The church was thronged, all were kneeling, many were weeping. Close to the altar steps, the stretch had been placed. At one end, a boot protruded. Drops of blood fell on the floor, slowly forming a dark pool. She also recalled Ella being, quote, on her knees beside the altar. Her face was white, her features terrible in their stricken rigidity. She did not weep. The expression of her eyes made an impression on me that I will never forget as long as I live. When she perceived us, she stretched out her arms to us. We ran to her. He loved you so, he loved you, she repeated endlessly, pressing our heads against her. I noticed that, low on her right arm, the sleeve of her gay blue dress was stained with blood. There was blood on her hand too, under the nails of her fingers. Dimitri and I succeeded in leading her back to her rooms. She let herself fall weakly into an armchair. Her eyes dry, and with the same peculiar fixidity of gaze... She looked into space and said nothing. Ellis shows herself here to be thoroughly practical, an organised person throughout this ordeal. She was in a state of complete shock and dealt with it by taking charge and keeping herself busy. While some accounts, largely from people who weren't there, have her being highly emotional, more reliable ones have her staying calm and focused. It seems that she feared to stop, worrying that if she allowed herself to feel her husband's loss, then it may be all too much. Indeed, no sooner had Marie and Dimitri managed to get Ella away from everyone than she began to ask about the coachman. Like I said, he had somehow survived the initial blast, but was gravely injured. She rushed out, still in her bright blue, blood-stained dress, to the hospital to comfort him, much like Jackie Kennedy on Air Force One while Lyndon Johnson was being sworn in. According to Marie... Quote, when the coachman asked news of my uncle, she had the courage to reply to him with a smile that it was the Grand Duke himself that had sent her. The poor man died peacefully during the night. She later attended the man's funeral and arranged for his son to attend the prestigious Imperial Trade School at her own expense. That night, not wanting to sleep alone in the bed that she had shared with her husband throughout their marriage, she had it moved into Marie's room. There they sat all night, talking about Sergei, reminiscing about the man that they had both loved. Then, and only then, did she finally break down and cry. And it is on that sombre note, I'm afraid, that I'm going to have to leave you for this week. I'm going to be going on a belated summer holiday over the next few weeks, so I'm afraid you're going to have to wait until the 6th of October for the final part of our story. I hope that you all have a very happy September, and I'll see you all on the other side.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.